Welcome to The Monkey Dish, the podcast that brings you a little bit more from the kitchen. I'm your host, Lynn Clark. I love food, eating it, making it, and talking to the folks who've made their careers around it. This season, we're talking to chefs and bakers in Austin, Texas. Today's guest, David Norman, the head dough puncher of Easy Tiger Bake Shop and Beer Garden, was kind enough to sit down with me and tell us his story of becoming a baker in a tortilla town. How long have you been with Easy Tiger? I helped start it about seven and a half years ago. I originally came to Austin. I was working for Whole Foods, but as a farm auditor for their meat program. Oh, so you check to make sure they're up to the like ethical standards? Exactly. Nice. Yeah, they have the standards on how the animals right. have to be raised. That was a great job. I spent a couple of years traveling all over the country wow. visiting farms and ranches. All really con- from chickens to pigs to mm-hmm. everything. Huh? Yes, what did you like about it? We originally moved to Texas to run a guest ranch in the hill country. My wife was the chef. We weren't married quite yet, but yeah. we got married after. But she was the chef, and I helped in the kitchen. We built a bread oven out there, did some baking. and But then my official title was ranch manager. And this was moving from New York City, so this is a big change, but really fun. Four years kind of playing cowboy, and it was really fun. And so it was a chance to kind of parlay some of that and we had some cattle and goats and chickens and horses out there. But it, back into the food world and working for a very interesting company with smart people. And yeah. It was really fun. And then 2008, a bunch of us got laid off. I was one of those. Eventually went back to baking. I'm glad I did. Baking for over 30 years. So was that coming out of high school or coming out of college? Like when did you dive into Out of into college. Um, I spent some time in Europe in high school and college. I was in Munich in my junior year in college. And I got home and I just really missed good bread. So I started making it. It was a hobby. Found a job in a little bakery in Florida. And turned nice. a hobby into a job. I still wasn't planning it on going into food as a career. Do you feel like you took to it? Like some people, you ask them about their skills and they're like, oh, I don't know. I just like, I do it well. And it was very satisfying in that making things kind of way. Did you have other hobbies that were like crafty like that? I wanted to be a painter. I wanted okay. to be an artist, but <laughs> nice. nobody was paying me to paint <laughs> pictures. They were paying me to make tart shells. So I got good at tart shells. Right. I got good at painting. <laughs> <laughs> Did you give up painting? Uh, mostly. What kind of stuff were you doing? I guess a common thread there. Because the, the, the last chef I was talking to, she was a dancer before she went into cooking, and she saw similarities between artistry and, and baking. I think so. I mean, to me, it's this perfect mix of it's it's a you're making an object, so it's mm. like visual arts in a way. Yeah. Um, but it's also temporal, like dance or theater or performance, because that object goes away. It's <laughs> not this precious object that stays in a museum. Right. It goes away. It's consumed. It's enjoyable. And then you make another one the next day. Another hundred or another thousand. (laughs) Whatever. But but certainly, you know, when a composer writes a piece of music, yes, a musician interprets that and puts their own musicality. Kind of the recipe, the score is written down, and then you produce that. Well, I I guess your tarts are probably a little different than the ones you had in Munich. Yeah. I always thought it would be fun to... Ask baker friends around the country, can I make a loaf of your, can I make one of your recipes and credit you for it? Mm. as like a special for a month. The Como bread we, I used to make when I worked at Grand Central in uh-huh. Seattle. Could I make Grand Central Como bread here under that name? 
What is that that bread? The como, the como bread. Yeah. It's an Italian bread, yeah. sort of, but just unique unique to Grand Central Bay in Seattle. It's really it's almost it's spongy in a really wonderful way. It's, like it's focaccia level spongy, or no? It's even lighter than focaccia. It just oh. has this beautiful chew to it and a great flavor. I'm sure they would be flattered. What did you like about the ranching? Like, that's brave to go from the city where you had, a, had established your career, New York City, to drop everything and move to a, a working ranch in, in Central Texas. Um, it was a great experience. It was right after 9-11. Mm. The place I was working, Boulay Bakery, had become yeah. like, uh, we were shut down. We were like five blocks from World Trade Center. We were actually feeding the rescue work first responders even as it was well beyond rescuing anybody we kept feeding them we were the commissary to feed um and then my wife's a freelance writer so that was kind of drying up too yeah we we don't like to look at it as running away from new york but when this opportunity came up yeah i mean when else are you going to get to live on a ranch in texas that's so true but i also think that in some ways i think um it kind of took that drastic of a thing to really interest me. I'm not sure I would have even come even to Austin, Texas directly from you necessarily. You know, it took something a little bit more to push you, know, you, like really different. Something you like challenges? I do. And yeah. I, and How do you keep pushing yourself once you like put up the walls and like <laughs> people know your name and they know your business? It's a daily challenge and push to keep the consistency, to keep growing and and keep the consistency and it's about teaching the bakers you know the people that come to work for us mm -hmm. it's about teaching them not just training but trying to teach them as mm. well i did some teaching i was a teacher at french culinary institute and also the san francisco baking institute mm. and i enjoyed that but something about like running a bakery you know we're still we're producing things and there's a creative side to it and i get to do different products and mm -hmm. try different things but also i'm teaching at the same time and so it's not just being a teacher at a school which is really wonderful too yeah i enjoyed that but but it's also there's something also really exciting about walking in in the morning and seeing beautiful breads that that i didn't touch because i know that i taught somebody else to do that mm. and that really gives me pleasure too yeah and do that and have it be consistent you can make a lot more breads that way i guess in a way yes, right like, very, <laughs> i couldn't do it all myself <laughs> that's impressive i hadn't thought about it that way are there personality traits or characteristics you found make a successful baker yes definitely i mean you have to have a certain patience to baking it's it is repetitive but it's also because it's a living thing it's changing all the time so I often contrast it to like a line cook's personality because I think it's different. Personally, I don't think that I would be great at as, as a line cook. I love to cook. I think mm. I'm a good cook, but being a line cook would be difficult. Um, that rush of constant bombardment and the, like a lot of line cooks, they describe it as kind of a sport and mm -hmm. they love that. And, um, I like knowing what we have to do at the beginning of the night. When it's a lot, it's a fun challenge to get through that and see, can we do it? But it's different because you do you know what it is and you pace yourself through it, versus kind of you know a Friday night's going to be busy, but you don't know what tickets are going to fly at you <laughs> right. then and when that you know when that uh, pop is going to happen. Right. 
that kind of thing. So I think line cooks and bakers often have a little bit different personality because I think a lot of line cooks um, would have a hard time making uh, 300 baguettes. And that's huh. what we do. But there's a, also, like, I try to instill in people that there's a certain Zen quality to that. Mm. It's like, because we make 300, 400, 500 a night, but most customers just get one. Mm-hmm. And so you really need to try to get every single one as good as possible. It's never going to be perfect, but try to get the next one just a little more perfect. Yeah. And then the next one, the next one. And if you can do that, that's the key to it. If you can get into that rhythm of seeing it that way, like, I'm going to roll this baguette, I'm going to try and get it perfect. It's not perfect, so I'll put it over here, but I'm going to try and get this next one perfect. Yeah. And then you'll get close to perfect. You'll get them better and better, and maybe never perfect, perfect. That's sort of but that attitude of striving towards getting every single one just a little bit better. Versus like, oh, well, that one didn't come out, but I've got 500 more I'm doing, so it does, that one doesn't matter. But it does, because like I said, that customer that gets that one, that's mm-hmm. the only one they're going to judge you by. Is that, do you think that philosophy separates good bakers from mediocre bakers? Yes, that's definitely true. Yeah. And can you tell that if you walk in and look into a, a counter, glass counter, you can, do you think you can tell? Or like, what signals you... Is it like, oh, this is a, a bakery I think I want to, you know, buy a piece of bread from? Yes, that would probably be, yes, like, are all the products, if it's a handmade bread, it's going to have some variation. Mm-hmm. You want that. You want people to perceive that. Because otherwise, it's just stamped out by a machine. You know, Twinkies, those are consistent. <laughs> but they're consistent because they're stamped out by a machine. Right. So, yes, you want to see some handmade variation but you don't want to see like uh, kind of a sloppiness to it mm. you want to see that that they're all made carefully and very simple what other places inspired you uh, that went in your travels like obviously munich was in the beginning mm-hmm. what other locations have like really stuck with you well paris of course mm. <laughs> you know i've visited lots of bakeries in paris mm. that, Including behind the scenes, I've never yeah. worked in one. I don't. I've never done a stage overseas. I was in a bakery and tour in France, mm. in the Loire Valley, for a week um, when I was with Boulet. But I can't really count that as a stage because he barely let me touch the dough. <laughs> you just watching. He was like, "Yes, <laughs> hang out with the bakers at night, and then get up and see all the sights during the day." So it was wonderful. Were you able to learn even though you were just watching? Yes. And the thing was, he had provided most of the base recipes for Boulet's bread originally. The cool thing was, is just by, you know, baking is all about numbers. It's proportions. It's ratios. And those ratios are very important. And that's what a recipe for a baker is, is like this formula. We call them formula of ratios. But the one wild card is the water portion because Mm. flour absorbs water differently. And it can vary, even the same brand of flour can vary from uh, batch to batch, depending Mm. on the exact growing conditions of that wheat, the storage conditions, the temperature and humidity when it was milled, the temperature and humidity when it gets to your bakery, the storage of the flour, all those things can influence how much water the flour absorbs, even the same flour. Well, French flours are 
different than American flowers and they absorb less water. We were going by the numbers that he had given us. But then when I went and visited his bakery, his starter especially and his dough was different. It had more water to it. Even though we were using the same ratio, it had taken that water in a different way. Mm. So by seeing that and feeling that starter in that dough, I came back and I added 10% more water and got the same feel and look to my starter and then my doughs. And the bread was just magically, it was always good. It was always very good and well respected in New York. But just like it bloomed more. It just grew a little bit more. It had better volume. It was just plumper and more gorgeous when it came out of the oven. Just from that little adjustment in water because our flour absorbs more water than French flour. I guess what breads did you pick and then how did you decide to to get to those? Um, The Levon, which is one of the most special breads to me, was actually inspired by that baker Mm. in Tour. Yeah. Um, It's not his exact bread, but it's based on a method he taught me. as the ba- kind of the base bread for a puree. I, I, cha- I like spelt. I like the mm. flavor of spelt flour yeah. a lot. And so I've added some spelt to it and changed the ratios a little bit and the starter a little bit. But it's based on his nice. on his style of baking. Yeah. And then, of course, I had to have a German rye bread. So I, of the 300-plus varieties, I, choose, <laughs> I chose one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'd like to make more heavier ryes. Yeah. Like, more rye content in the do they, they move okay like you actually that's the hard part yeah um, is it an, an edu- I don't want to say education because that sounds uh, insulting but how do you it is to some degree yeah. it's like that is a fun part of having the beer garden and restaurant together with Easy Tiger mm. with the bakery here is we can do some specials and show people different ways to eat breads that they might not otherwise yeah. know understand or know yeah so what would you do with a, a hearty rye, like a German rye? What would you recommend for a, a newbie? They're great paired with any kind of charcuterie. Mm-hmm. And just a, a thin slice, a little bit of butter, always some butter, <laughs> and then you know just a nice salami on there. Mm. And simple. Those breads they have a robust flavor themselves, but you add just a simple smoked sausage or something mm. like that on there, and the. Ch- Flavor of both changes. Mm. It's amazing. It becomes a, a, you know, more than the sum of the parts. Right, like a wine and paired with the right, right. dish. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, you know, like an Alpine cheese, mm. like a Gruyere, or, um, Comte, or something like yeah. that, goes so good with the rye bread. Nice. And actually, rye pairs well with seafood. The French eat rye bread with all the, with oysters and with their interesting plateau de mer <laughs> oh really just yeah. like uh, keep a slice on the side yeah and just it's a dark rye bread with lots of really thick slab of butter on it huh. my theory is that earthiness to rye really has a beautiful contrast with the briny seafood hmm. what other uh, styles do you have of bread um we have of course the classic french baguette um, we make a sourdough, which is similar to the Pano Levon, only it's just white flour. Mm-hmm. And we try to make it a little bit tangier. 
It's certainly not a San Francisco style okay. really tangy yeah. sourdough. I don't I don't aspire not to thing. that. <laughs> um, but it's a little tangier. Um, we ended up with a lot of Italian breads. Mm. You know, just they're popular. Yeah. So there's ciabatta, of course. Yeah. Took me a while to add ciabatta because it's actually a very different method mm. than the French breads and even German breads. And what? It's such a wet dough, and then it's not really shaped. It's like this part of the secret to getting those big open holes in ciabatta is not to handle it too much. Oh, and is that why it then has that like plop shape? Exactly. Huh. The name means slipper in Italian. But then we have a. So one of the things that I always like to ask um, chefs in particular is if they would recommend it, the role they're in to a friend changing careers. Like, so if you had a, a old friend who was like, I'm fed up with banking. I want to go be a baker. Would you, what would you tell him or her? I would tell him, come try it out for a couple nights. Yeah. And see. Yeah. <laughs> um, my perspective, that my perspective on that comes from having taught professionally mm-hmm. because we had a lot of career changers. Oh, wow. And just, you know, you could sort them out. The yeah. ones that just had no idea. Mm. Uh, you know, they had a certain romantic vision of baking breads and making this stuff, and they didn't understand the long nights, the early mornings, the overnights, the, you know, especially starting out in a smaller bakery. It's like you do everything. Yeah. You have to have a certain romanticism to mm. But you have to have the realism too. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't do it if you didn't have some romanticism right. about it. There would be you couldn't take it. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to be a little bit romantic about it. It's yeah. just you have to also know the reality of it. Mm. And I don't know. But yeah, agriculture is. Whew, I knew it was difficult. Yeah. Man, it makes it makes baking look easy. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Is it this seven days a week or like? What's the what makes no, it so much they're harder? they're similar in that way. It's the uncertainty mm. of agriculture. I mean, not that you know, you have to build a business in baking. It, there's nothing given about it. You have to perform. Yeah. But there's you know, um, if the crops fail, somehow my mill is still going to find somewhere to get me grains. True. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's true. Um, but if the farmer, you know, they'll go to a different farmer. Yeah. Uh, but that farmer whose crops failed, it's tough. Yeah. To do all that work and then have the the vagaries of nature and yeah. everything else. That's the hard part. And it just, as much as we, at a certain level, in a certain niche, and we live in this niche, value food and value what goes into making food. <laughs> Overall, we still are so far away from valid, the true value of our food in this country. Tell me more about that. You know, it's just we want everything cheap. Cheap, cheap, cheap. We want to eat cheaply. Yeah. And, um, you know. Have you seen that, that sort of lowest common denominator change in your time? Because you've been, you've been in the business for a while. I mean, have you seen people being willing to pay a, a buck more for one of your baguettes and they could get it? HEB, for example. Yes, definitely. Um, but again, it's, you know, which is really encouraging. But it's also this little, it is a niche we live in. It's a bubble sort of that we live in. And once you step outside of that, 
it's shocking. Yeah. <laughs> that it's still a small, small percentage of people. It's growing. Yeah. People that value better food and, and where it comes from. And that's the trend, but it's still it's still a small portion of the overall food economy. For sure. In this country. And one of the one of the most interesting and kind of ironic things about traveling for Whole Foods is I probably ate the worst in my life <laughs> because I wasn't traveling to Whole Foods cities that had Whole Foods for the most part. Right. I was traveling to the places that supplied Whole Foods in rural America. Right. And it was just it was fast food was the only option a lot of times. Yeah. Like real fast food. And then it was like I mean, because from one side, it's an economic challenge, right? Like, who's going to go start a restaurant when there's only 500 people in 100 square miles? Exactly. That's yeah. near impossible. But that doesn't mean you can't encourage other um, better choices, I guess. I just don't know how you do it. No, neither. Yeah. It's and it's not like it's always been that way either. Like, if you think about the history of the West or settlement in general, you had to make your own food and grow your own stuff. Right. So it's not like you're running McDonald's and <laughs> even into the 50s and you know in some parts of 60s. I wonder if like just bread baking because it's so simple and like not primordial but it's pretty much from pretty early human times. It is. Like if that's one of those things where it's like oh I could I'd be willing to like start baking my own bread again. I wonder if that would help. I mean there are a lot of small town bakeries that are good artisan bread bakeries. A lot of people that are doing micro bakeries, where they're just selling at farmer's markets a couple times a week. And Have you noticed a different palette for breads? Like, oh, I mean, definitely. obviously Central Texas is hot. Like, does that affect? I think somewhat, yes. Um, I think it uh, has historically, traditionally, kind of affected the, the food culture here. Mm. And I think Bread has less of a foothold in Texas. Were you in Seattle before New York? Yes. I mean, you know, there I could see probably a much deeper, like, bread appreciation. There was in both of those um, cities. But it was very, it was different, though, too. Between those two? Yes. Oh. It's like, uh, on the West Coast, they love sourdough. Mm. But if you call something a sourdough in New York City, people won't. A lot of people won't touch it. Because it, like, so they associate like, a funk or, like, a, yeah, a tang. Yeah, that, that real tang. Yeah. And so, uh, you just change your vocabulary and use the French term. It's panelavon. It's, you know, naturally leavened. <laughs> then it's fine. And But that's a different style of bread. It's not as tangy. So. Um, but, yeah, if you started calling it a sourdough. So I made a rye bread once. When I first got there, I made a French-style rye bread, which is... Dark rye flour, a lot of, you know, it's like 70% of the bread is rye. Mm -hmm. um, and I served it up and they thought, oh, this is very good bread, but it doesn't taste like rye. And I'm scratching my head. I was like, what are you talking about? This is one of the most pure rye-flavored breads I've ever made. <laughs> and then I realized it didn't taste like caraway. And that's what New Yorkers, so yeah. and these were true New Yorkers, right. thought of rye that's the flavor they associate right they need rye. to see the caraway seeds in there and even unseeded even unseeded rye bread new york rye yeah. has caraway powder in it. 
Oh, I didn't. It has that flavor. I didn't realize that. Yes. That's yes. funny. <laughs> it goes back to that education thing. Uh-huh. So when you were thinking about opening up here, like what what worried you? I saw opportunity, but also somewhat, and it did start slow. We started slow, but we uh, we built it up. Um, but I I often said I was baking bread in a tortilla town, <laughs> and this isn't that many years ago. There had been other bakeries here in the past, and there was still a couple good bakeries here in town, but it's just, um, we need to develop the bread culture even mm-hmm. more here. Mm-hmm. And I think we've done, we've made inroads there, definitely. So tell me a little bit, you, your first shop was the one on East 6th? Yes. How'd you end up there? Because it doesn't seem like a, when you're walking down under 35, you're like, oh, here's a good spot for a bakery. That and the whole beer garden bakery combination was a very happy accident. Okay. So I hooked up with the guys from Elm uh, Restaurant Group, and they wanted to. They were very interested in starting a bakery to supply their own. At the time, they just had Twenty Four Diner. Mm-hmm. Twenty Four Diner still is one of our better bread customers. Nice. Um, but they had some other ideas of some concepts, and we're really bread centric. We were looking to just do a bakery, mostly to supply them and do wholesale. Mm-hmm. The retail was kind of a second thought, and not, you know, if it if it was a location that supported retail, great. If it didn't, we weren't going to worry that much about it. But then, and they also had one of their concepts was kind of in the back pocket was the spear garden idea mm. called Easy Tiger, Easy Tiger, right? Slow down and stay a while. Yeah, that was the whole idea. Their real estate person took them to that space because it had that gorgeous area for a beer garden, which yeah. is perfect for a beer garden. And, uh, Especially Central Texas. And, right? Good shade trees and just nice ambiance. Mm-hmm. And the downstairs was perfect for that. Had a good bar there and, and good area inside. Um, there was a small kitchen upstairs that could support that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was still a lot of space and they were like, well, let's bring David down here and see if we can put the bakery in here. So... We penciled it in, and it worked. And that's and then as soon as we said that, it was like, of course, a beer garden and bread. It's like the Germans call beer liquid bread. Right. And it's like it's very similar process. And the whole idea, everything we do here, we do ourselves, and it all takes time. Mm-hmm. Bread, good bread takes time. Mm. So do sausages. So does pastrami. Mm. You know, it's got to be cured and then smoked and then rested. And yeah. sausages are... You know, ground and stuff, but then they have to sit and mm-hmm. rest for a few days, and then they get smoked, and some of them, are, yeah, you know, that whole process. Yeah, sauerkraut takes ten days to make, right. at least. <laughs> so that was kind of the integration. Right. The beer garden that drove the location, but yeah. then the two together were just this magic. It was like we were scratching our heads. Why didn't we think of this to begin with? <laughs> so, and it did it start off all right. Like once yeah, you, I'm sure the, the beer garden, beer like, garden was crushing was, it. It was. Yeah. And, you know, having our own bakery as part of that, integrating into the menu was great and fun to do. But on the wholesale side, it was a slow start. And then people started catching on. And, and then I, th- I see a, a maturity, a maturing of the whole food scene in, Tex- in mm. Austin 12 years I've been here. It's really changed. Like in what ways? Variety, but also the maturity and willingness to cook a little simpler mm. cook really well 
but not have to have everything so chefy. You know, like just have good solid cooking as mm -hmm. the base, and yes, interesting food, interesting products. But you know, there was a time, not just in Austin, in lots of cities I've worked in, even in Seattle, and the food scene in Seattle has been great for a long time. Mm -hmm. But there were, you know, there was a certain type of restaurant and chef that just had to put two or three extra things on everything. Mm -hmm. It just too much and that has I don't see that in Austin way less if all, if all. I think maturity is the best word for it because right, it seems learn, like immaturity is the one where it says I need to add a little right, bit more I have to keep going right. it's not uh, you know it's not, not 20 ingredients on this plate right. but that sort of courage to pull back and let the ingredients and in your skills speak for itself is mm. and there's a lot of really great food here does it worry you when people start talking about gluten allergies? It's one of those food items we've eaten for, what is it, 15,000 years or whatever it is, that it will continue to eat it. Oh, I think, I think we're finally getting a little bit beyond the food allergy thing. I mean, not, the trend is not going away. Mm -hmm. Gluten-free is not just as fad. It's not going away. Yeah. Um, but I think more and more people are realizing that it's, that it's not necessarily healthier for the majority of it. The industry has equated gluten-free with healthier. Not healthier for most of us. Not inherently healthier. Mm -hmm. um, good, well-made bread is good, wholesome food mm -hmm. for most people. And yes, there, there are people that truly can't tolerate gluten. And the rise in gluten-free has really helped them. It's, it's wonderful for them. Um, but I think... So that's definitely a trend that's not going away, but I think they're realizing that they can buy a loaf of good bread and enjoy it. Maybe we don't eat bread daily as much as some cultures, and right. maybe even as much as we used to. The people are coming back and realizing, at least, you know, they're they're being more choosy about bread. But also, I see like I'm really excited that there are couple others bakeries popping up here in Austin now um, with really good quality and I think that's only gonna it sounds strange to say I, I wish there were more good bakeries here <laughs> right. you know from a competition standpoint but that it's it's not like that it's like what if we have better bakeries in Austin the whole niveau will be raised for everybody mm -hmm. and the culture will be raised and people will get used to eating more good bread People don't, as a rule, people don't drink Folgers anymore. Yes, the coffee thing hit a certain level and then some people couldn't make it. They got mm -hmm. out. When I first moved to Seattle back in the early 90s, it was like there was a coffee shop on every other corner, mm -hmm. or almost every corner. And yes, some of those got weeded out. It was about that time when it had peaked, some were getting weeded out. But the good ones stayed, and like yeah. I said, People didn't go back to Maxwell House. Right. They still drink better coffee and room for a lot of good coffee. It's the same with bread. You go to Seattle or Portland, and there are several really good bakeries thriving mm. in both of those cities mm. because people expect good bread, and they want to be able to choose between different bakeries from products. So what challenges did you face in, in, in expansion? I can't imagine you knew about this place four years ago. 
Or did you? Yeah, finding a location was was part of it. Yeah. We just decided that it was important to do the whole thing Mm. as well, not just go and do a wholesale bakery in a big warehouse space. You know, we're paying more rent here than we would in a warehouse. Yeah. Um, it's good that people can see what we're doing, see that it's real bakers. I mm-hmm. think that's important. I think that's one of our strengths is we do have real bakers here doing things, most things by hands, but that people can see that. When you do Thanksgiving, do you take like a baked good? I would imagine when you're known for something, like there's an expectation from family or friends for like... <laughs> You know, like, where's David's we, apple pie or tart? We go almost everywhere with bread. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, so no matter where you're going, go you got to bring something? We bring some bread. Yeah. Um, actually, I like I like cooking Thanksgiving. It's my favorite holiday. Hmm. Nice. You have something? Are you the turkey guy? I like the, doing the stuff. Yeah? Nice. So, yes. Outside of the bird? Both. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Nice. Nice. Anything special that goes in it? Like my grandma used to throw like canned oysters because I grew up in Tennessee. It's mm. very strange. I don't know how it ended up in East Tennessee because we're not right? anywhere near <laughs> the ocean. It's always very strange to me. Um, ours, you know, it's my father's recipe, my parents' recipe, but my dad was the one that did it. It's pretty straightforward white bread. I mean, hmm. they used to make it with Wonder Bread, of oh, course. Really? <laughs> um, I use a little bit better bread. But <laughs> it's just basic, you know, yeah. onions and stock. celery, some a little bit of stock, yeah. and uh, um, sage. Nice. Sage is the main thing. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the time. It was really nice talking to you. Yes, it's been uh, a pleasure. I've learned a lot. <laughs> Thank you. This episode of The Monkey Dish was made possible by our producer, Chris Olson, and editor, Kate Hurley with theme music by John Dealey and the 41 Players. I'm your host, Link Clark. Don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you found us. Bye.